open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Hopefully everyone has a study sheet. Hopefully everyone has a Bible. That'll do you more good than a study sheet will. Romans chapter 12. What was the first study? Oh, there we go. Today is part two of our study on godliness, embracing our destiny, part two. As we pointed out last week, that sheep definitely looks like he is embracing his destiny. It's kind of what I feel like doing right now, as I'm sure some of you do after yesterday's festivities. But really, the reason I chose that passage, or that slide will become apparent by the end of today's lesson. But uh, whether you realize it or not, and maybe you are one of them, but many Christians walk around through life, well, not walking at all. They're laying down on their backs. They're faint. They're not doing anything at all. And what we covered last week is the fact that that was never supposed to be the case with Christians. That was never supposed to be the case with any of God's creation. We were created to be in His image. It was something that He had planned before the foundation of the world even. God always wanted a people group to be in His image, to be made in His likeness. That's why in letter A on your outline, we saw that last week. Going back from Genesis 1 when God created... Man, he wanted him to be in his image and likeness, a three-part being, so we could have fellowship. In Romans 8, talking about our birthrights as Christians, the moment you got saved, whether you realize it or not, that was the goal. You were then placed into God's image again. That third part of you, got to be careful which fingers I use here to make you dead. That third part, that spirit that was dead, became regenerated or born again at the moment of salvation. You are now in God's image and likeness again. So technically speaking, at the moment of salvation, all of us are godly. All of us possess godliness, at least from God the Father's point of view, when He looks down upon you. He doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees you in Christ and Christ in you. But as we looked at last week, even though that's a positional, that's your position in Christ, practically on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not like that, is it? We still have sinful thoughts, we still say sinful things, and we still do sinful th stuff, thoughts. You do sinful thoughts. Starts as a thought, works its way out through actions. Today's going to be rough. I'm already feeling it. So, because of that, practically speaking, we don't always exude being in God's likeness. That's why in letter B, we saw the need to grow in godliness and that it only comes through the trials of patience. That's why there's no coincidence that Peter, when he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, that from patience you add to your faith godliness. And that's what we covered for the last couple weeks. Again, refer back to the podcast if you need uh, help on that. Now, something's kind of interesting. We, we left off last week talking in letter C. That the calm after the storm. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Bible, trials and times of testing are often, I guess, personified, for lack of a better term. They're often used as an example with a storm. A storm of life going through a trying, testing time where the winds are blowing and knocking you all around, where it's scary, it's frightening, you don't know what's going on. And I started thinking about this. I was like, you know... Really, when I look at all of these character traits in 2 Peter chapter 1, really it has to do with growing in maturity. It is possible to add these things to your faith, but some of them, they have to come with time. And I really was, I was thinking about this even just this morning, the idea that 
There are some of you in here that you have been saved for a while, but you've probably not had your faith tested in a major way yet. And so in that kind of a sense, you can still exude godliness. You can add it to your faith. But when I really think about just the idea of godliness coming out of trials and and testing, there are little increments of it that you can be tested and tried in your faith, and then you come out the other side looking more like God. But the type of trial I'm talking about where you really start to display godliness, it really comes from one of those trials where your faith is completely tested, where you really start to begin and wonder, God, I've always believed you. I've always known that I can trust your word. I've always known that I could trust you. I trusted you with my very life and salvation, but I don't see at all what it is you're doing. I don't see at all where it is you're going. What's the point of this entire trial? And honestly, I'm for the first time in my life beginning to doubt if you're even listening to my prayers. I don't know if any of you have ever found yourself in that kind of a predicament before, but I remember when I did, and it was again just a couple years ago where I'm like, okay, Here I am, unemployed for three months, first time signing my name onto a house, pregnant with our first son. How on earth am I going to provide for my kids in every single application I'm sending in during the height of the economy four years ago, five years ago now? Height of the economy. And no one's returning back my applications. No one wants a phone call. And I remember getting to a point, and I've talked about this before with you guys, where I just had mentioned, God, You need to show me what you're doing. It's been three months and I'm getting nothing from you. I don't know what the point of this was. For the first time in my life, after walking with God for about 15 years, I was wondering, are you even really listening? Do you care at all? And then after he brought me through that storm, that was where I got to sit down and look back at everything I'd been through and really just start to evaluate, okay, what was the point of that? What did you want me to learn? Why did I go through a storm like that? It was to make me more like you But what do I need to take away? And that's where letter C on your outline. The calm after the storm is where application takes place. You've been tested. You know that you can count on him. But maybe God put you through that trial, not to see that you can count on him, but to ask you, hey, can I count on you? God often asks that question. Can I count on you with what I have next for you? And we saw last week, 1 Timothy 2, 2, he wants that quiet and peaceable life for us that we're not always on the run for our lives. We're not always getting tested and tried. We're not always running away from God and then getting chastised. No, we should come to a point in our lives where we're walking with him and things are going the norm. That doesn't mean you're not going to have trials anymore, but you know how to navigate through the storms. You're not like the disciples who are just toiling and rowing in the storm, going nowhere fast. You know how to navigate your way, and sometimes you know how to be like, just got to weather the storm out. Just got to let patience have her perfect work on me, and I got to just get through this. That's the maturity we're talking about. That's the growth we're talking about through this. And again, maybe some of you haven't experienced that yet, where you come to a point where you're doubting everything. If so, if you're growing in your walk and you're adding these things to your faith, I'm telling you, it will come. It will. That's okay. Romans chapter 12. I, like, I love this. I guess I should get over there real quick. We talked on this last week. This is where we kind of ended talking about, man, you know what? We need to... Uh, Oh, that was verse, chapter 13. We need to not avenge ourselves. As much as lieth in us, we need to be peace, live peaceable with all men. Recompense no man evil for evil. If an enemy hunger, feed him. 
Uh, where do you think Paul got all that from? Is this not what Christ talked about in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7? Did Christ not exude this? That's the word of the day, exude. Did he not display and demonstrate this with all of his life in the Gospels? Yes. That's why we're studying godliness. If we want to add godliness to our faith, we need to look at God himself and what was he like. But check out verses 1 and 2. I meant to read this last week. He says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. <laughs> oh, by the way, which is your reasonable service? How would you guys define reasonable service? Oh, there's a need in the church today. Someone couldn't make it in the kids' ministry. You know what? I'll miss main service. I'll fill in. If you're asking me, that's reasonable. But is it a living sacrifice? Are you laying down your body as a living sacrifice? Saying, God, my life is yours. Me, my life, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Corey Howell died on June 7, 2001. My life is hidden Christ. So every single morning I need to wake up and say, God, what do you want from my life? What do you want? This is your life. What do you want to do with me? I'm just a vessel. Use me. I lay down my life. And whatever happens to me, I'm going to trust you with it. That is what Jesus Christ calls in Romans 12.1, reasonable service. Eesh. So how's your service been? Is it because everybody else is signing up to do this? Are you doing it just because you want to fit in? Are you doing it just because you don't want people to think that you're not walking with God, so you're going to sign up for this ministry or do this activity? That's not reasonable. That's not holy. That's not acceptable unto God. But check out verse 2. And he says, And be not conformed to this world. We talked last week how that word conformed means reduced to a likeness thereof. Remember the analogy I gave? of Play-Doh. You have like a square Play-Doh and you're trying to fit it through a triangular peg. Well, if it's hardened Play-Doh, you need to warm it up. You need to put that Play-Doh under heat so that it becomes soft and moldable. And then you got to push it through. You got to put that, that, that Play-Doh through pressure and you need to push it through the triangular pe peg, which means there's going to be Play-Doh that's shaved off. That's what God wants to do with you. That's what he does to conform you. He shaves off the things that are in your life that aren't going to bring him forth any fruit. That's what we talked about being conformed into the image of his dear son in Romans 8.29 last week. But check out again verse 2. Be not conformed to this, what? World. Mark it down. You are going to be conformed to one thing or the other in this life. There is no in-between. You are either, with the decisions you make every single day, with the choices, the conversations you have at school, the people you hang out around with, the things you allow into your life, you are either being conformed more into God's image, or you are being conformed more into the world's image. There is no in-between. Mark it down. 
He says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Don't be like the world. He'll let you know. So that's where we left off last week. Before we dive any further, let's go ahead and pray, especially for two's brother, Justin. Father, I want to thank you for, again, just an awesome turnout we had yesterday. So much fun. But now, Lord, uh, we need, uh, while our flesh is worn out, we need our spirits renewed. I pray that you would speak to each and every single one of our hearts, as I trust you already are with just the verses we've looked at so far. God, I pray that you be with Justin right now in the next room. I pray that as he's getting to know the people in junior high, and I pray for if Andrew's teaching, that you would just anoint his speech or whoever the teacher is. Reveal the word of God to him. I pray that he would be just like I was when I was in junior high. When I heard the stories of this book, I was blown away by the power thereof. I came away with knowing, wow, this book is real. I know it to be real. There's not a book like this at all. I pray that that would be his realization right now, and I pray that he would surrender his life to Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone in here that has not yet surrendered their life to you, that they would. But speak to us, God. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So point number one, talking about this calm, this application time that takes place after the trials of patience, what is it you should come away with? What is it you should have learned when you come through a time of testing? Well, point one, this is where you learn to listen to the right voices and you turn away from the wrong ones. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. To your right, a couple books. I forgot to mark it down how many times this actually occurs, but uh, the word godliness, it doesn't show up a whole lot in Scripture. As I mentioned last week, godliness doesn't show up at all in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, no one could actually be in God's image because Christ hadn't died yet. No one could be in Christ and Christ couldn't be in them. But the word godly is used. But in the New Testament, godliness shows up, I think maybe 15, 16 times. A vast majority of it is found in 1 Timothy. It has the most uses. You know why? 1 Timothy, it's a book that Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, who was a pastor of the church of where? Ephesus. Oh, that sounds familiar. We were covering, we got a book in our Bible named Ephesus, and there's a church period named Ephesus. Interesting. All of 1 Timothy is talking about how should people behave, what's their conduct, how should they be in a church setting. And the word godliness shows up all throughout this book. But check out verse 7, verses 7 and 8. He says here, but refuse profane and old wives' fables. Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? It's basically talking about like, uh, you know, an old wives' tale. It's, you know, uh, can anybody think of one? I didn't even think this is off the top of my head. You guys think of an old wives' tale? It's something like, I don't know, like your grandmother always said, oh, you know, if you wash your clothes with apple cider vinegar, it gets the stench out or something weird like that. I don't know. Corn Pop was a bad dude. <laughs> Thank you, Joe Biden. Corn Pop was a bad dude. Sorry. Sorry to spring that uh, old wives fable on you guys. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, my grandma used to always say this. And you're like, I've not heard that backed up in science anywhere. You know, that's kind of what it's talking about. But really what he's also mentioning here in the context of this passage, he's talking about those in professing churches who say certain things like, you know what, you can't eat certain meats. Well, you know what, there's a certain group of Christians that they should not be allowed to marry at all. There's actually a church, very, very popular throughout the world, where they talk about both of those things. 
as we get closer and closer to the end, as we were looking at in Revelation on Wednesday nights, which, by the way, you can all come out to that, this church, they have other churches, too, that go by the name Christian or Protestant, and they forbid the eating of meats during certain times of the year, and they forbid certain heads of churches to not marry. In other words, he's talking about things that have no grounding in Scripture whatsoever. But if I apply this practically and devotionally in our lives, you know what? Any gossip that takes place or things that are said about you or somebody else that simply aren't true or have no foundation of truth whatsoever, that's an old wise fable. That's profane talk. Look what he says again in verse 7. Refuse that kind of talk and exercise thyself rather unto what? Is anybody else in verse 7? Let's hear it. Exercise thyself rather unto what? For bodily exercise profiteth little. People are always caring about the external. And don't get caught up in that whole bodily exercise thing. Think about the context of what he's talking about. Everybody wants to look good on the outside. Even in the church. It's more important that I appear as though I'm walking godly than I actually am walking godly. It's more important that I sign up to show up to an event or that I sign up to do this ministry than that I actually put my whole heart and soul into it. That's the context. Bodily exercise profit of little, but godliness, what God is doing on the inside, making you more conformable to Him, is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Man. So you know what? How you can be godly, how you can apply godliness after the trials of patience, you start to listen to the right voices and you start to have nothing to do with the wrong voices. You start to hang out with more godly friends and you stop listening to those who are only spreading gossip, rumors, lies, and really aren't doing the work for the Lord. That might happen even within here. But certainly it should be happening at school too. It should be happening with other friends who aren't pushing you to walk closer with Christ. You come to a point of maturity where that doesn't mean you completely have nothing to do with them because we still need to be in the world, just not of it or conform to it. And you still have to have a, a field that you're witnessing to. But you don't let the things they say or do sway you. But again, the context is the church. Especially here. Watch the things that people say about others within here. And if, well, not if need be. If you hear that, call it out. If you need to pull that person aside, or goodness, if they do it amongst a group of you, put an end to it right there on the spot. That is the, one of the biggest ways that Satan can drive a wedge into a ministry and destroy it from within is gossip. Zero tolerance for that. None. Good? Refuse that kind of stuff. Don't listen into the words of that. But not only that, are you guys like me where you start to listen to the voices up here a little bit too much? We all have them. It's just the voices of our flesh, that old man trying to resurrect himself back in our lives. It's the, the thoughts that we had maybe from the world system. But even just the thoughts of doubt, thoughts of fear, thoughts of, man, I am not good enough. I shared this with you guys before. And to this day, I still struggle with the idea of, I'm not the man for this job. There's no way. 
I'm too old. Yeah, maybe if I was in my early mid-20s again, sure. But you know what's funny? Even if I was that man back then, I wouldn't have been ready spiritually for it, for this task. I had to go through the trial that I went through five years ago in order to prepare me to be in this role now. So even though I might feel too old physically, and I feel like I maybe have too much of a disconnect with you guys, even though, honestly, I still feel like a 19-year-old, both in maturity and physically. But even if I feel that way, I need to stop and silence those voices that are trying to get me to think that you're not good enough. I know I'm not good enough. My confidence is in the Lord. That's right. But those thoughts, they're ever there. Do you guys have them? Where you feel like you're not good enough? Where you feel like no one likes you? It's not just Andy. (laughs) Those thoughts are real. And if you don't keep them in check, they will destroy your walk and they will keep you down. Refuse. Listen to the right voices of what God has to say. And what godly leaders and godly friends have to say. Check over chapter 6. He says in verse 3, talking about sound doctrine, talking about things of the Word of God, and he says in verse 3, if any man teach otherwise, otherwise from sound doctrine, from the Word of God, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to what? Godliness. Godliness. In other words, if you're around somebody who's just running their mouth, And it's not saying the things that are of the Word of God because they don't know the Word of God, because they don't have a relationship with Christ. They might be saved. But if they're running their mouth about things that are actually going contrary to the Word of God, again, like a gossip or a slanderer, do you know what so-and-so did? Do you know what they were like? See who they're hanging out with? Anyone's running their mouth like that? You know what you just do? Remember what verse 4 says. Here's how God describes these people. A man who runs his mouth teaching otherwise, he is proud, knowing nothing. Who cares what they have to say? If it's causing division, yeah, you need to talk with them. But otherwise, who cares what they have to say? Because someone who runs their mouth, contrary to the words of God, they're proud and they don't know what they're talking about, is what he just said. So... If you maybe have been the victim of somebody running their mouth about you, saying things that aren't truth, saying things that are contrary, and teaching otherwise, just rest in verse 4. That person who said that is proud and they don't know what they're talking about. When you come through a trial, as God matures you, I get it, it's hard. Especially you guys as teenagers, it's hard not to care what people think about you. I was there, and to a degree, I still kind of feel that way. It's hard. But when you come through a trial like that, you need to mature to get to the point where you're like, I'm not going to listen to that voice anymore. I'm only going to listen to his voice and listen to sound truth, sound teaching. Point number two, what else do you apply to your life after the, the trial of patience, after the storm of patience? This is where you see gains of maturity to accomplish the impossible. We're already in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Can I get a reader to go over to Philippians 4? Carson. But he continues in this same vein, in this same uh, context in 1 Timothy chapter 6 about people who know nothing uh, that just run their mouths. Look what he says in verse 5. He's like, these people, they have perverse disputings. They're crooked in what they say. They're not straight on. Disputings of men of corrupt minds. A corrupt mind will say corrupt things. 
and destitute of the truth. Again, they don't know what God's Word really says. Supposing that gain is godliness. From such, what are you supposed to do? Withdraw thyself. If you have a friend that continues to burn you again and again and again, and you've talked with them, and they continue to burn you again and again and again, withdraw yourself. If it's getting to the point where things are going on and there's an issue here and, and you need to talk with us, talk with us, leaders. We'll help you. But withdraw yourself from them. And again, this does apply at school also. Withdraw thyself. But I see that they think that gain is godliness. If they have more friends, if they have more followers, if they have enough people who see their side of the story, they're gaining all of this attention. And they think, oh, well, if I have more people that agree with me, I have more followers, more friends than the other person, surely I'm in the right here. That's something that goes on in churches today. Most churches think that if we just continue to expand this way, and we continue to expand that way, and we expand that way, and we get more people into our building, that's godliness. Now, I'm not sure if Pastor Rory said it on winter camp or not, but if you haven't heard him say it, he's like, those kind of churches, yeah, they might be 3,000 feet wide, but they're only two inches shallow. They have no roots going down deep. God was never interested in having everybody come in. No, when you read the book of Acts, He doesn't say everybody come in. He says everybody go out to the highways and byways, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The plan of God is not to have everyone come, come, come. Let's fill ourselves this way and that way. No, it's let's get roots down deep so we have people who are strong and mature enough in the Word of God who then have a desire and a heart and a calling from God to then go. That is the plan of God. That's godliness. Here, and he corrects it here in verse 6. But godliness is great gain. Is that what it says? No. Godliness with what? Contentment is great gain. I remember, uh, as I've shared my story before, um, after I started walking with God and I started carrying my Bible to school, that was a challenge that Pastor Mike Blake gave us at church camp my sophomore year. And as I started carrying my Bible to school, it's funny. I ended my freshman year. We had this kind of, it wasn't really a dance, but they called it a dance. It was just the end of the day, uh, the last day of freshman year. And we had a DJ come in, so everybody came in. And it just so happened to fall on my birthday. And I remember a couple guys from the baseball team, they had the DJ go up and announce that it was my birthday. And when he did, in front of all the freshman class, a couple guys hoisted me up on their shoulders in front of my entire class. Mind you, I was not walking with God at this point in my life. That was how freshman year ended for me. And sophomore year began with me carrying my Bible to school. The thoughts that you get from people, or the looks that you get from people, the words that they say to you, the fact that they start distancing yourselves from you, I lost all of my friends by the end of that week. I had no friends at Perry whatsoever. None. Doing God's work, being godly, not to look good, not to appear godly, but I wanted to take this book and I wanted to share people what God did in my heart that summer. And it was hard to be content not having any friends. But I had to learn that. Especially as I started seeing that what I lost in friends at school, I gained in a family here. 
to where I craved and counted the hours and the minutes until Wednesday night came on Monday morning. Until I craved and prayed, God, just get me through the rest of this week to get me to Sunday morning. And let me show up extra early so I can just be there and talk with people. If you're struggling with that, be content. It's hard. You have to learn it. You have to pray really hard for it. But you will see gains in your spiritual Christian walk unlike any other. And God will do mighty works through you and in you if you are content to be godly. Remember what Paul said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4? All forsook me. Hey, listen. That was even of his godly friends. That was even of his church family. All forsook him. As the pressures of persecution started rising up in the church, it was just him and Timothy. It might happen. You might find yourself in that kind of a position where your family wants to leave this church for whatever reason. Maybe they got ticked off by somebody. It's happened before. If you're convinced that God is doing a work in you here, in spite of what may have happened with your family, and you have to make that decision, to find a way to come to church here, even though your family's going to go to another church? What are you going to do? Follow them? Maybe, maybe the reason they leave is for a legitimate reason that somebody actually did tick them off. And that person who ticked them off is not willing to make it right. Even so, is God working here? Is God working in you here? What are you going to do if that day comes where even your family they start seeing things different from the way that you see them. Are you going to do everything in your power to make sure that you're here? You're going to do everything in your power to make sure that you are where God wants you and needs you to be. These are questions I hope none of you have to face, but it might just be what you need to face in order to add to your faith godliness. Uh, Carson, sorry, we're actually going to skip Philippians 4 just for the sake of time. But Philippians 4, he's talking about Paul learned in whatever state he was in therewith to be content. Whatever state he was in, whether he was in prison, whether he suffered shipwreck three times in the deep of the sea, whether he was being whipped 40 times, save three, whatever state he was in, he learned to be content because he was godly. He had godliness. You know what comes after that? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. One of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. It's not I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's which. Whether you realize it or not, the changing of those two words makes a huge difference. Because a lot of people will take that verse and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they think, I can do everything. God wants me to do this, and I am going to do this because it's what I'm actually passionate about, and I didn't really ask him if he was passionate about it. And I'm going to do it, and God's going to give me the strength to do it. That's what that verse says. But they don't realize that maybe God doesn't want them to do that for their career. God doesn't want them to go to that college. God doesn't want them to date that person. What they don't realize is that's the case because the actual verse really says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. In other words, the things which strengthen you, you can do all of it. It just has to strengthen you. There are certain things that will strengthen you that will not strengthen this person over here. It's different based upon your walk. God will give you the strength to do that as long as it's something that's going to strengthen you. You need to contemplate that. Be content 
Be godly, and He'll work it out for you. Letter D. As our lives become more sanctified, we begin to see that this world is not our home. This is another benefit of being godly after a trial of patience. Because after you go through a storm, you realize what really matters in your life. Hebrews 11.13 says, talking about the, the, the saints of faith in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the promises that you and I do in the New Testament, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They were nomads. They realized that this home is not their home. They realized that their conversation in Ephesians 2 was in heaven where God sits. That's what they're looking forward to. They're not getting comfortable here. The same thing is said in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And 2 Timothy 3, 5 says that some people, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof from such turn away. If there are people that are having a form of godliness, but they're way too comfortable here on this earth, you got to turn away from them because they're just going to get you to be too comfortable on this earth. Letter E, our perspective changes from our small bubble of life to a world vision in the light of eternity. Again, because we see what really matters in life. Flip on over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Oh, I love this passage. Our study of these character qualities of adding your faith takes place in 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's how Paul ends this. Sorry, Peter. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We just talked about that last Wednesday. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. We're going to talk about that in the future weeks. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. What's that next word there? Verse 11, what's the first word? Would you look at that? that? Then that all these things shall be dissolved. When you actually look and you catch a vision of what God is going to do and you realize how little time you have left, what manner of persons ought ye, you, to be in all holy conversation and what? Godliness. When you see and catch a vision for what God is doing, and we see as we've been looking on Wednesday nights how little time we have left, when you see that, it ought to change the way you behave. It ought to change the way you carry yourself. It ought to change the way that you interact with people at school. It ought to change the way you are with your parents at home. It ought to change the way you are in this youth ministry. What holy conversation you should have in all godliness. Because in verse 12, uh, what's that word? Looking. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, uh, what's that next word? Look. Look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye... Help me out again. I'm just struggling. Look for such things. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. 
very definition of godliness. And this has been God's plan for your life since way before you were even born. Do you see how important it is to Him? We can't come away from a passage like this or from a study like this and be the same if our hearts are truly in it. Understand, it can't be us four and no more. I love being with you guys. I hope you can tell that I'm not really shy. But you know what's funny? I kind of am a little bit of an introvert. I like my home time. There are days where I look at the calendar, I'm like, oh, we got nothing going on tonight. Yes. I don't care if they're getting together, we're staying home. There are times where I'm like that. But if you're like that all the time, or it's just us four, no more. If it's just you and your best friends in youth, well, I gotta tell you, there's a reason why God may plan a church to break up us four and no more and to start to get you to spread out and to minister to other people that are found within here. Our perspective needs to change from just our small bubble of life to a world vision in light of what we know is coming. Application. We have, and I put on there, I don't know if anybody caught it or not, every single week for the application, or every two weeks I should say, it says, anoint thine eyes with this. But I thought about this in light of Christ and who He is and, and talking about godliness, if we want to be like Christ, we need to have Him anoint our eyes with this one. Just as He did the blind man. And just as He promised to finish a good work in us, this is all Him. We need Him to anoint our eyes with Matthew 9.36. But when He saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You want to know what the heartbeat of God is? You want to know what it's like to be in God's likeness? That's his heart. And it's no coincidence that it's that verse as he saw his eyes were anointed because he's God. No coincidence that it's that. Because when you look at what the next two character traits are that we're going to look at, brotherly kindness and charity. Those are the last two traits of 2 Peter 1. Again, this comes beautifully. It sets up, if you have this added to your faith, you will see a world vision. You will have a heart for each other, and you will have a heart for the lost. You will add brotherly kindness and charity. Well, maybe, unless you get sidetracked. Mark 9.36. You know what we need to do in letter A? Possessing godliness requires us to see people and ourselves through His eyes. Hebrews 5.2 talks about that he had compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way. It does not say that he had compassion on those who know every single verse of the Bible and those who are uh, always doing everything right, perfect, perfectly, and then it's all good on the outside. No. You need to see your need for Christ. I'm already saved. You need to see your need for Christ. 
You need to come to the point where you realize, I need Him just as much now as I did at the moment of salvation. Not for my salvation, not to continue being saved, because once saved, always saved, if you're genuinely saved. But for your practical daily life, your practical daily uh, walk to be godly, to exude godliness. Word of the day. Point number one. How do you do that? You know that he experienced everything we go through and more. Hey, do people bother you? Do people bother you from time to time? They bothered him too. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in all points like as we are. The only difference is yet without sin. He didn't sin. Didn't cause him to speak back to them or to, although he wanted to. He understands what you're going through. If it's somebody who's bothering you, if it's somebody who aggravates you, he experienced those things we go through and more. I love Philippians 2.7. It says that he made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a what? Servant. Servant. He served the very people who put him on the cross. What will you do to the person who slandered you, who gossiped about you, who doesn't like you? What will you do? Will you see them? Will you look at them through his eyes? And as I had already mentioned, point number two, no matter how much we add to our faith, we're still in just as much of a need for him as we were the day we got saved. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of who? God. We need him just as much now as we did the moment we got saved. The day you forget that fact... Be looking out for a giant fish to swallow you up. Keep warning my son of that. It's Jonah's favorite story. Every time he disobeys, just keep looking. Hey, buddy, you know, you might do something one day where mommy and daddy aren't able to spank you. But just be looking out because a giant fish might swallow you up. Letter B. Seeing people through the eyes of Christ will align your desires with his regarding others. I put Matthew 9.36 back up here. The second half of that, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You know this picture, by the way, of a sheep? That's what a sheep looks like when it faints. What does it really look like? It's dead. It looks like it has no life in it whatsoever. That's maybe how we look from time to time. And maybe that's what's going on. We're faint. We're not following the great shepherd. We're not walking with the shepherd. And we're faint and worn out from this world, from school, from each other, from our own flesh. And your walk is dead. There's no life in your walk. It happens. But thank God. God, he's moved with compassion on us and he still has compassion for us. I think about Jeremiah 50 verse 6. It says, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. You got friends who go to other churches? Maybe they're godly churches. Maybe. Maybe they're not. Given what we know about church history and what God has to describe about this time period. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They've downgraded. They've forgotten their 
resting place. Do you remember what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened, and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God wants to give us rest. Not the quiet and the peaceful life where we just camp out and have no concern for the lost world and those dying and going to hell. No, but a quiet and peaceful life, a life of ease where we're walking with the Savior. Yes, we'll still have issues, but man, we'll be able to just, you know the storm I just got through? I can deal with you saying crap about me. That's the stuff. That's the quiet and peaceful life where those little things don't bother you anymore. Because you're maturing, you're growing, you're adding to your faith. These sheep, though, have forgotten their resting place. They've forgotten to know what it's like to rest with the shepherd. To He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Great psalm for a shepherd and a sheep. Do you have a burden for those caught up in religion and false doctrine, those who have no rest for their souls? They have no shepherd because of what they're doing. And honestly, there are Christians in this room that are like this. I'm free. I think that guy added that last sound effect in at the end. As a dog to its vomit. God got me out of this rut. He got me out of this mess. He got me out of this sin. Let me just dive right back into it. It's not what it's supposed to be like. But we are sheep. And sheep can be pretty dumb. People are like that in here. People are like that in churches left and right all over the place. You want to see through people or see people through Christ's eyes? Number one, that means judging righteously rather than based upon appearance. John 5.30 says, I can of mine own self do nothing. This is Christ speaking. Again, a model for godliness because he was God, is God. I can do of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. John 7 says that we are to judge righteous judgment. We are supposed to judge. It just needs to be done righteously. And there's a way to go about that in Matthew 18. You can check that out later. The caveat here, are you seeking your own will if you're going to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ? Or do you genuinely care for their soul and you want to see them not go further down the hole than they already are? Not of mine own will, but of the will which of the Father which sent me. If you're going to judge biblically, it can't be based upon, oh, well, I heard this through three different, I heard it from second hand. And so since I heard it from second hand, it must be true. So I'm going to go to the source and say, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, oh, maybe I should have actually talked with you first to see if you actually did say that or do that thing. Oh, sorry. Hey, you know, you, you look as though you're not really walking with God. How about you get to know them first and say, hey, what's going on in your life? What's God been doing? 
Don't judge based on appearance. Don't judge based upon what you see or what you hear because looks can be deceiving. And if you hear something from somebody else, people can be deceiving. Seeing people through Christ's eyes, and number two, it means you'll have compassion on the multitude despite circumstances. Where do I want to go to? Well, Matthew 20 is the, the shorter passage. Turn there. You know what's going on in Matthew 15? You should check that passage out later. Christ is exhausted. Because again, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He's exhausted, and he's laying down. And this woman of Samaria comes up to him. She might not have been Samaria. Maybe I'm conflating that with John 4, but she was a Gentile. In other words, Christ, when he came, he was supposed to come to the lost sheep of Israel first meaning that Israel would take the gospel to the Gentiles. But here this Gentile woman comes to Christ and he's trying to rest. He's exhausted. And she's like, Lord, please, I need a blessing. And he goes, woman, what have I to do with thee? I am come to the lost sheep of Israel. And the disciples hear that and they're like, yeah, you heard him. Go, get. And he goes, Christ himself. And she keeps begging and pleading with him. And Christ goes, it's not for me to give what belongs to the children, to the dogs. That was Jesus who said that, by the way. You know what her response was? Yeah, Lord. But even a dog gets the crumbs that fall off the table. And it completely changed his heart around for her. And he's like, I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. And his heart was moved with compassion for her. Even though... He was exhausted. Even though, well, I should be ministering just the lost, the lost sheep of Israel. No. Even when we don't feel like it, and even when they're not the people who typically we typically minister to, they may not be people who have a similar like-mindedness that we do. Maybe they're different. Christ has moved compassion for those people and ministered to them. Matthew 20. Look at verse 30. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I should do unto you? They said unto him, Lord, that that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had what? compassion on them and touch their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. When everyone else around you is saying that that person is not the time of day, they're not worth your time and your energy or effort, those are the people that you need to love on and minister to. You might be in here. You might think that, yeah, I'm not worth the time of day. Oh, not to Christ. He cares very deeply about you. Number three, seeing people through the eyes of Christ, you will have compassion on the multitude regardless of their response to you. Listen to Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. This is the only example in the scriptures where Christ likens himself unto a mother. A hen is a female who's very loving and nurturing to her people. 
So often we can be very harsh and not nurturing whatsoever to each other, especially those who are in need of it. But notice how he ends there. Often he would want to gather her as a hen does her chickens, and ye would not. Even if people don't want to hear anything you have to say to them, you love them anyways. Where are we at? 2 Corinthians 12, 15. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. This is Paul's attitude. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. That's ministry, FYI, if you're planning on going into it. The more you love and give, the less you're going to be loved. Number four, to look for opportunities so that we may finish our mission well. There's the camp theme. And that's what Christ did at the end of his life in John 17. Let us see. If we want to see more laborers serving in the fields of harvest, we must be always abounding in the work ourselves and training others in the same. Listen to 2 John, I'm sorry, 3 John verses 5 and 6. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of my charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. That's going to lead perfectly into brotherly kindness next week. But here's how Christ ends that passage in Matthew. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. If we want to see more laborers serving the fields of harvest, we must be always abounding the work ourselves and training others to do the same. If you bring people together of a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Let's pray.